beautiful. And what I want to know is, what is really good in your life today? I'm Kia, and this is the season four finale of the Female Veterans Podcast. Let's talk about 2020 for a second. This is my final episode of 2020 and my final episode of season four. I reserved this episode because it's an incredible story and I am so excited to share it with you. But before I do, I just wanna say thank you so much to all of the listeners and all of the supporters who share these episodes and talk about the podcast and listen each and every time I publish a new one. Thank you to all of you who have offered to donate and support to keep the episodes going. It's been a really rough year for me. You know, I am a disabled veteran like so many of you, and I'm a newly single mom working again for the first time in 13 years. And so getting these episodes out sometimes is a real push, but I'm going to keep going because getting our stories out there is necessary. If you've ever heard me do an interview on another podcast, then you know that I'm always talking about the work of the Vet Center in Los Angeles and how when I spoke to the outreach coordinator, she told me that the female veterans don't get donations because the perception of the veteran is still male. And so with every single episode and all of your support, we're changing that. We're changing it. So there's more of us every single day, more female veterans every single day. And so I'm going to continue to share our stories and make an impact one episode at a time. So thank you so much for your support. And shout out to Canada, where my largest percentage of new listeners came from this year. And if you know a female veteran who would like to share her story from anywhere around the world, send them my way. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode. Here's the season four finale of the Female Veterans Podcast. Today, I have someone extra special with me. She is a CSM retired, Jennifer McNeil. She is an exemplary leader with over 25 years in the service in the Army. She holds multiple degrees. She is an experienced orator and just a really lovely lady. So I'm so excited to have this interview with her. She entered the military just after Vietnam. So you know, if you know me, I'm a history buff and I'm, I'm so excited, which, which means she entered the military just when I was being born. <laughs> and I'm super excited to hear her story. So join me in welcoming Miss Jennifer McNeil. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and 
And how are you? You make me feel old. I'm talking about you were just born when I joined. Girl, you look younger than me. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> you look younger than me. So when oh, we're my. done with the interview, you're going to have to tell me what's going on here so I can do that. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. So beautiful. You guys can't see her, but she's really stunning. Okay. So tell me, my first question is always, what made you join the military? Actually, I joined the military to get away from a bad marriage, Mm -hmm. a very awful situation, like so many others during that time, and even probably today. I wanted to provide for my daughter because she was, you know, born through that union. And after a year, I just had... just had to make a move. I just had to get away. And it was, it was somewhat an abusive relationship as well. And your parents or your family can only go so far. And I, and there was a a lot of um, real negative incidents along the way that even followed me into the military, which I can share a little bit later with you. But that was the impetus. That's, that what got me going. I just had to go. I definitely feel that. I feel that. I've got a couple of bad marriages under my belt. (laughs) And and I can definitely understand how the military would seem like a good way to go to get away from that. I think a lot of girls um, are going to the military, leaving something that's not that positive behind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a a good escape. Yes. And so tell me then, um, you went into boot camp. Um, in the mid seventies. Correct. So what was boot camp like for you? I joined, I was probably about 23 or 24, probably about 23 at the time. And I felt that I was a little older than most of the the ladies. So physically to me, I was behind the curve rank wise. When I looked at my drill sergeants and all the people over me, they were closer to my age. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had that inner job, that inner drive to make it through. And it was rough. I'm not going to sit here and say it wasn't. However, when I went through basic training, it was just women. I did not go through an integrated basic training because I joined during the Women's Army Corps doing it. And I joined during the reserves first. So it was all women. And we wore lime green blouses and skirts with the shorts up under the skirts, you know, so it was kind of fashionable of the time. So it's nothing but the army evolved into, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a little bit different then, but the, the biggest challenge for me was the discipline aspect. I came from East St. Louis, Illinois. So I came from an environment where you're literally street savvy. You learn how to handle yourselves in the street. You know, you were very vocal and boisterous. So when I joined the Army, I had to learn very quickly that that type of behavior was not going to be tolerated. So that was a mental game for me. I had to learn to adjust with that. And, and it's so funny, you know, because I found my drill sergeant on social media. <laughs> Did you? Yes. And she happens to be in Augusta, Georgia. Oh, my god. Yeah. She came to my Toastmaster meeting. And I remember wow. it like it was yesterday. It, it was awesome. But anyway, but it was, you know, and I told her when I saw her, I said, you know, you started me on my journey, you know, because they became role models. 
Mm-hmm. Actually, and she, she, you know, she confided with me that after probably about two years after I graduated, she was in an automobile accident and was medically retired. So I was one of her first, you know, recruits that she trained in the military. So she probably got some joy out of meeting me again as well. You know, and that was like, I mean, that was in 1975. <laughs> That's been a long time ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. Like, yeah. I know we're all like, don't be on social media. Well, now we're all on social media right. probably half the day. <laughs> Just yeah. have something to do. Uh-huh. But I mean, that is part of the beauty of social yes. media and the draw to social yes. media, I think, is because you can find people that you, I mean, I found high school friends and yes. things like that. So it's just, it's kind of beautiful if, and you know, it's not abused. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I actually was going to ask you, were you still in any contact with um, people that you met in boot camp? But I guess just, just a drill sergeant, actually. Mm-hmm. However, through social media, I've been able to connect with a sergeant from my very first duty assignment when, my, when I met my husband. Wow. And she posted on Facebook, is this Jennifer with a daughter named Tracy and a boyfriend named Mac? And I'm like, who knows that much about me? And I did not recognize her name. So then I responded. And then I, this is Lindsay. And it just blew me away. So she actually knew my husband and I before we got married when we first met. Oh my gosh. And we'll be married 43 years this year. Oh my gosh. Isn't that something? (laughs) That's beautiful, actually, and fairly rare these days, I think. Yeah. So that's that's really lovely. I'm going to double back to that because I've got a question about that, but I'll hold it till the end. Okay. So, um, so what was the biggest obstacle you had to face in boot camp, do you think, at, at that time? The biggest obstacle for me when I went through basic training was the fact that my husband at that time was trying to take my daughter away from me. Um, and then when you join the Army in 75 or the Reserves, if you had a dependent child, you either had to be married, which you assume that your child will stay with your husband, mm-hmm. or you had someone else within your family that had agreed to take care of your child. In my case, it was my mother. However, I get this certified letter in the mail telling me that my ex, because we weren't divorced, so my husband at the time, we were separated, was going to, was trying to take my daughter. So I went to my first sergeant and I told him what was going on. And he asked me two questions. He says, who has your child? I says, my mother, are you sending an allotment home? I said, yes, I am. He says, don't you worry about it. You have not, you have not abandoned your baby. Don't worry about it. The army will take care of it. And in my book, Stripe Strengths and Lipstick, I shared that that was the first time I saw or felt how the army takes care of its own, you know, because that was a men- that was stressful. I mean, can you imagine being away trying to start a new life for your child, and all of a sudden this guy is going to try and take your baby away from you, and you had already been in an abusive environment? Mm-hmm. So that was that was probably the most anguish time for me during basic training. The rest of it was pure discipline decision making because I'm going to, I'm decided that I'm going to make it through this. This is what Mm -hmm. I'm going to do. But that probably put an umbrella over me at that point. 
I can just imagine. Um, it sounds like he was just perpetuating the oh, abuse Lord, and yeah. using your daughter as a tool to get at mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trying, yeah. to, trying to destroy your new life before yes. it even took flight. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, why are some men so trifling? I just don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, anyway, that's another podcast. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so, okay. So after you finished boot camp, mm-hmm. um, tell me, tell me about your military experience. What was that like for you? All right. So you know, it was so funny. I just recently read uh, a post on Facebook, one of my women veteran sites, where they were talking about um, how they went, their basic training was in their very first station. When I left basic at Fort um, Jackson, South Carolina, and went to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, I arrived on the weekend. They literally said, you're on your own. to Monday. After being eight weeks in confinement until when you, what you had to do, when you can do it, you know, where you were living, all of that. I get to San Antonio, Texas, first time away from home. And they're telling us, it was probably about eight of us. Well, you know, you're free till Monday morning. So that was a shock. You know, of course there were soldiers there that were kind of partnered up with you. But um, after AIT, I went to Fort Polk, Louisiana. I went during Memorial Day weekend. I arrived there probably on a Thursday. On a Saturday, I went to the NCO club with some of the girls in the barracks, which this one lady who befriended me on Facebook was one of them. And I met my husband. Wow. I literally met him on my second day there. On my second day there. That's incredible. And year, the anniversary month, actually May of 1977, we got married. Oh my God. Yes. Okay. Now Mac is a Vietnam vet. Uh So when I met him as a young soldier in the army and the youngest one in the unit, a lot of the senior folks, both civilians and military kind of take you under their wing. And I remember this older gentleman telling me, same private Williams. He says, um, you've met an NCO that's not married and doesn't appear to have any children. You need to jump on it. He says, that's a good man. <laughs> I guess you could say he was my father figure in my life at the time. Jump on it. You know, <laughs> and you listen, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, not that I was interested in finding a husband at that time after coming out of a, a bad marriage. You know, God mm-hmm. sent you gifts in different, different times in your life. Right. <laughs> you, you just never know, you know. But anyway, the relationship lasts over a year and a year after that we got married. At the time when we got when we got we went to Hawaii. In Hawaii he was a staff sergeant and I was a young soldier and everybody told me I was going to a clinic environment, Tripler, Triple Army Hospital. We get to Hawaii, they tell me, Nope, you're not going to the hospital, you're going to a med battalion. I have never served in a field unit. When I was at Fort Polk, we went to work from 7.30 to 4, and we wore whites, mm-hmm. Monday through Fridays. No weekend duties or wow. anything. This was in 76 to 78. I get to Hawaii, there's a whole different army wow. that I had to learn. And I was assigned to 25th Medical Battalion, Schofield Barracks. So I was a, a part of a division, a med battalion within a division. So the structure of personnel was a little bit different. But it was the first place where I realized 
that you had to be smarter than the average person if you wanted to be successful. You had to do a little bit more if you wanted to be successful. So I learned from my leaders and I learned from my husband. And because I was a, I don't want to say I was aggressive and I don't want to say I was assertive, but I will say that I was motivated because I felt that I was behind the power curve because everybody within my age group were two to three ranks ahead of me. So mentally, I felt like I had to catch up. So I started going before boards and doing things that was going to put me out there so people knew who I was and what I was all about. I was willing. They wanted someone to volunteer. I volunteered, even though at that time they said, we don't volunteer for anything. But if they wanted someone, I volunteered because I felt like if I'm going to show you that I'm a leader or I had the potential of being a leader, then I need to volunteer if you need someone. So I, did, I wasn't afraid of doing that. But what happened, I was a dental assistant and I didn't like doing that. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in charge of me. So as a young soldier, I applied for dental hygiene school as an exception to policy. And it was approved and I went to hygiene school and I graduated with honors. So when I was assigned to Hawaii, even though my rank was, you know, they assigned you by rank. So I was within the E1 to E4 category, which normally are dental assistants. However, when I got, when I got to Hawaii and they looked at my paperwork and they realized that I was a dental hygienist, then things kind of changed because you didn't have that many hygienists assigned to the med battalion. So the doctors were coming to me saying, you know, if you come over to this unit, you know, you don't have to worry about this and you don't have to worry about that. And being new to the military, you know, you're being told by a captain that you don't have to pull duty and you don't have to go to the motor pool and all those things that you didn't really want to do because you had never done it before. You fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, that sounds like great. So I took it. And after about six months, the senior guy, the first sergeant calls me in and he says, um, what are you doing? And, he, and I'm like, I don't understand. He says, you're not on the duty roster. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. He says, but you're working in the clinic because I was a dental hygienist. You know, how are you going to function in a field environment? You were assigned to the med battalion. You must be able to take care of soldiers in the field environment, not just in a clinic. And he looks at me and he says, I'm pulling you out. Okay. So wow. I'm like, okay. So again, someone has intervened because they've seen something in me that says, no, you, you're not technician. You know, yeah, you like being a dental hygienist and you're wearing your whites and you work in the clinic all day long, but you've shown us that there's a little bit more, another side of you. So they pulled me out and I started going to leadership schools, you know, I mean, they, we're going to see you. And then I started, you know, scoring really well, you know, and then I started getting promoted mm -hmm. and I'm like, oh my God, you know, so I had to make a decision. So when I was assigned to Hawaii, which was my very second assignment, I decided that I did not want to be technical, that I wanted to go into managerial leadership. So from that point on, my, my skill specialty stopped as a dental hygienist. And then all my training from that point on went towards being a leader, you know, managing clinics and managing soldiers. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, but during that time in Hawaii, it was, um, it was rough. You know, I was told I couldn't go before promotion boards. The reasons that I received was lame. I had to go again to the first sergeant. I'm like, I don't understand why I meet all the criteria. You know, someone asked me, well, do you think it was sexist? Do you think it was racist? Mm-hmm. And I said, I couldn't tell you today. I can only tell you that I knew it wasn't right and that I had to go to someone because I felt like I'm ready to be promoted. Why are you telling? And then it was this, to be honest, it was a Caucasian, he's seven, Vietnam era guy. He told me no. And so I go home and talk to my husband about it. And he said, no, 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 you need to take this up to your leadership. And again, the army tells me we take care of our own. And after talking to the first sergeant, I knew right then, because the excuse was really lame, that I was going before my promotion board, which I did. And then 90 days after I went before the board, I got promoted. You know, so. We are our own best advocate. Yes, we are. <laughs> yes. And it didn't stop there, mm-hmm. you know, because then I get promoted to staff sergeant. And there was a gentleman in the unit that was a sergeant who was a Vietnam vet. So they call me into the office and they say, we want to congratulate you for getting promoted to staff sergeant. And we know that you are inexperienced, but we have a platoon sergeant position and we want to make this guy the platoon sergeant and make you his assistant. But I outrank him. And again, they put you in a situation where you've never been in charge of 32 people, you know, and you know that technically you should post to do it, but they frame it in such a way that it doesn't sound like it's going to be negative towards you. But then again, I go home and talk to my husband about it. And he, no, 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 no. It is not that kind of party, Jennifer. You get the rank, you get the position. And how are you going to learn how to be a leader or the responsibilities that goes along with it until you do it? I go back to this long lieutenant. And again, he's a Caucasian gentleman. And I tell him that... uh, and as soon as I hit his door, first thing he tells me is that, oh, here we go. Wishy washy female. So again, Ooh. oh yeah. You know, and this is in the late 70s, you know. Mm-hmm. And here we go. Wishy washy female. Can't make up her mind. And I had to say, no, sir, that is not the case. I've discussed my promotion in this position with my fellow non-commissioned officers. And they were all happened to be E6 and above. So a few of them had been to Vietnam, assigned in the unit. Mm-hmm. And they said, you take that position and we will help you. So technically, I've had all of these people in the unit that were leaders were saying, we will mentor you into being successful. You know, so it, I mean, in the, in the, in the end, it all worked, you know, and we talk about experiences in stripes, shirts and lipstick. I share that the same situation occurred between another soldier or in my unit when I was assigned to Korea. And that was like 10 years later, where the unit at that time wanted to take a guy, and these happened to be two Caucasian soldiers though, but it was a male and a female. So that's Mm -hmm. literally recognizable as sexism. But they wanted Mm -hmm. to put him in charge of this clinic and she outranked him. And I had to go to her and say, oh no, honey, no, 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 you got the rank. You need to fight for your position. You know, so we, we become, we hope that we can share our experiences with others so that they don't make the same mistakes that you made. You know, I was lucky enough or blessed enough to remember that situation, how it occurred to me and how I was able to reach out. And there were those NCOs to help me. In Korea, you know, you're not assigned 
often in close proximity to soldiers. You know, you may be in one clinic and someone else is someplace else. But when you hear things like that, you got to be able to speak up and say no. You know, you become a mentor just by the fact that you've lived it. You know, you got the rank. You take the position. How are you going to learn if, if you don't step forward? You know, and I, I probably ruffled a few feathers because I did speak up and she did get the clinic, you know. But as far as I was concerned, I was doing what I was supposed to do. That's why I was there. That's why I was there. You know, I was the only female E7 in the unit. So that's why I was there to look out for all soldiers. And it just happened to her. And I didn't have, didn't bother me to say what needed to be said. What a blessing for her that you're like, <laughs> you are, right? Because I'm sitting here thinking, like, how would I respond in those mm-hmm. situations? Like for yours, for example, it's like you said, they make it sound good. Mm-hmm. So if you don't have that person to go talk to and go, hey, this is what they're offering me, you might think in your head, hey, this is a chance for me to be an assistant and That's really right. learn from this person on how to lead mm-hmm. when, wait a minute, like we learn best by doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So if if you don't have that person or in her situation, she probably was like, okay, awesome. And then you're like, wait, wait, no, you outrank him. And then you go up and it's like a light switch goes off. Like, yeah, you know what I do? And I'm just, I'm like, I'm so used to this sexism, Mm -hmm. right? That for a second there, I'm not even catching that it's happening to me. Yeah. And there it's (laughs) happening right in my face. And I was about to smile and take it. Right. Yeah, and yeah, it's you a know, beautiful thing that you were there to just be like, uh, uh-uh, uh, girl, mm-hmm. this is what you need to know, mm-hmm. and this actually kind of what this podcast is about right. for young girls who are considering going into the military, mm-hmm. so that they can hear all the good and all the bad mm-hmm. potential outcomes and make a really educated decision on what to do with their future. There you go. I read a lot about that in your book. That's you offered right. a lot of great resources for that, actually, in Stripe Strength and Lipstick. But we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But it is such a good book, you guys. So, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm just feeling all of that. It's amazing that you were able to help her. And I'm sure there was many people, mm-hmm. judging by your strength of character, that you will say you're motivated mm-hmm. um, to help people and help them realize their maximum potential. Yes. One of the things I loved about your book, too. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, so how many duty stations did you get the pleasure of Ooh. serving on? Well, I left Fort Polk and I went to Hawaii. We were in Hawaii for three years, which was a wonderful assignment. I learned a lot. I made rank really fast there because I was able to show that I was flexible from working in a clinical environment to working in a field environment, which was important if you really to really wanted to achieve high rank in the military. So you had to show that you could function in both environments, right? But there was a funny thing about Hawaii. You were asking me about physical fitness. Fort Polk, Louisiana, there was no PT. Can you imagine getting to Hawaii, being assigned to a medical battalion, a company, medical company, that the average mile or the average run was three miles? Goodness. And I just couldn't do it. Oh my God, I couldn't do it. And when I when we re, when we got to Hawaii, we were running in boots at the time. That was before they trans, you know, changed into sneakers. But you had to run three miles in boots, and I just couldn't do it. So I was with the slow pokes. You know, they they put all of us that couldn't make the mile at the end of the formation, and they would assign somebody to run with us. You know, to keep you going, keep mm-hmm. you motivated. Yeah. 
And I was determined that I was going to make those three miles. So every weekend, my husband would run with me. You know, we'd run three and a half miles in Hawaii because I'm, I'm going to make you, because, you, know, you know, I wanted to get promoted. And physical fitness was a big thing in the military at the time. Mm-hmm. When I remember when I actually made those three miles, I was so happy. I ran up to the first sergeant. I, all I could say was I made it. I made these three miles. It was such a wonderful feeling. But, you know, to someone else, it, it may not mean anything, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's physical and mental endurance. You know, you have to want to do it for whatever reason. And you just have to push yourself. And when you're unconditioned to do that, it just becomes an inner drive. You, you know, you just, no, uh-uh. Y'all not going to stop me, you know. And, and, and especially if it was something that was needed for promotion. So there we go. So anyway, you asked me about duty station. So after Hawaii, we went to Fort Lee, Virginia. And because we were in the Army Married Couples Program, we were stationed there for eight years. So even if one of us came up on an assignment, if they could not assign us both together, then we were deleted from the, from the orders. However, my husband got promoted to E7, and at the time I was a staff sergeant. Once he got promoted to E7, instead of moving him away from Fort Lee, they just moved him to another company, but on the same installation. So about three years after that, he gets promoted to E8. And when he gets promoted to E8, I get promoted to E7. Now he comes on assignment orders. And what they told him was he was going to Germany and I was going to Korea. But that didn't make sense. You know, why are you going to send him to Germany and me and Korea, especially when Germany was a three-year assignment and Korea was a one-year assignment? How are we going to get back together as a family? So at that point, I told my husband, as a first sergeant and a sergeant first class, we're going to go to DA in uniform and talk to somebody, you know, because, you know, computers are working now. You know, you eyeball a person. After going to, to DA, we come back to Fort Lee, and there is an order for me, for both of us, actually, where we got assigned to Korea. But when we were in DA, I told my branch that... I didn't care if they assigned me as a 91 Echo, which is dental, which was my active MOS, or 91 Golf, which was social worker psychology specialist, which was my secondary MOS, and I was trained to do that as well. Mm -hmm. I didn't care. They could assign me in either career field as long as I got to Korea with my husband. So they said, okay, but you got to be smarter than the average guy. So I get back to Fort Lee and I go to my commander and I ask him to write a letter of introduction for me to the DENTAC commander in Korea. So I'm going to try and pave my way. That's right. So when, when I got to country, when we got in country at the airport, Kempo, the DENTAC sergeant major was there waiting for me and point blank said, you're not going to this unit. We've redirected your assignment to the DENTAC. And that's how I got to my unit at Fort Lee, you know. And people say, no, you didn't. I say, oh, yes, I did. You know you what I mean? To. People do it all the time. Sometimes it's all about who you know. I mean, let's mm-hmm. face it. And I, my is. work led talk for itself. So my commander didn't lie. He told me exactly what they were getting. And that happened to be the same unit where that young lady was being 
put into a, a clinic mm-hmm. with this, before, this guy who, who she outranked was going to supervise her. So, you know, they're probably thinking at this point, oh, Lord, <laughs> <laughs> what have we got here? You know? But, you know, it is what it is. So, you know, we ended up going to Korea from uh, Fort Lee. And then from Fort Lee, we went to Fort Benning, Georgia. And in Fort Benning is when my husband was deployed to the first Gulf War. As he went to 30 days in the sand, I think that's what they called it. Mm-hmm. He was there and then he came back from that war and decided to retire. And then I got promoted and that's how we got to Alaska because now he's my dependent. So I went to Alaska as a first sergeant and from um, Alaska, I was selected for sergeant major and went to El Paso, Texas. And my last assignment was at Eisenhower Army Medical Center, Fort Gordon, Georgia. Wow. What yeah. a storied career. You yeah. got to see a lot of cool places and meet a lot of interesting people, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. And and so uh, what, I, I know I was reading in your book that you were going to take on another duty station and then decided to retire. Correct. So I was um, on assignment for, for car, well, actually I come on assignment for Fort Hood, Texas, and I was in school for my second master's degree. No, my first master's at the time. So I called the Simon branch and I asked them to defer me. I asked to be, def- to be deferred for maybe about six months because I wanted to complete my degree before moving again. Because when I transferred from Alaska, I was involved in my master's program and I had to stop because I was moving. You know, and obviously when you transfer schools, you lose hours. And I didn't want to lose any more hours if I could prevent that from happening. So they agreed and they deferred me. But instead of deferring me, they deleted me from the assignment at Fort Hood. And two weeks later, I cap out for Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So I called Branch again. I'm like, what the hell's going on? Excuse me. I'm like, what's going on? Why are you guys trying to keep moving me when I explained to you what was going on in my life? And I kind of got fed up. And then I said, you know what? Somebody need to talk to me and ask me what my plans are. Because I had already had 20 years in the military, you know, so I could mm-hmm. retire at any time. I said, y'all need to ask me what's going on in my life as a senior non-commissioned officer. You know, respect what I want to do at this point. You know, and you kind of go back and forth. But anyway, and then my husband calls me on the phone, probably when all this is going on. And he's like, you know, my trees is graduating from law school. I'm like, yeah. He said, well, do we really have to move? I guess not. He said, well, why don't you go ahead and put your retirement papers in? So it happened just like that. So I retired and I got my master's degree, you know, and I don't believe in um, like stuff that happens, mm-hmm. but I believe in unexpected gifts for a reason. You know, I wasn't thinking retirement, but I got my master's in May. I have a retirement ceremony like the last Wednesday of August. When I decided to retire, I started dropping my resume. The morning after my retirement ceremony, I get a phone call asking me if I'd come in for an interview mm-hmm. for director for patient services with the College of Dental Medicine. And everybody's telling me, you know, you're going to take six months to a year before you find that job. No, they hired me while I was still on active duty. You know, when they called me and said, would you accept the position? I just started laughing. I said, yeah, I got to be kidding. They said, no. No, no, no. We want to hire you, you know. And it was a temporary job initially. And that's what made it so attractive to me because we talked about moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. So I'm thinking, well, what better way to transition from military to academia than taking a part-time position, 
Mm-hmm. You know, and we already had a home here in Augusta. So I, you know, I sub- submitted my, my resume, you know, and I was one of five people they interviewed and I wasn't in the job 30 days when the Dean calls me in and he says, uh, Ms. Magnil, how you doing? I said, well, I'm doing fine. And he says, um, well, we just want you to know that your position is now permanent. Wow. And, you I know, I was hired on a temporary basis. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, permanent? He said, yeah. I said, um, well, I guess I'm a keeper, huh? He said, oh, yeah, Miss Magnolia, you're a keeper. <laughs> so, you know, you know, coming from an army for over 25 years, you start learning, okay, so they probably posted this as a temporary position to see who they were going to get. And if they got somebody that they really, really like, they already probably had it in the, in the workings to make it a permanent position. Mm-hmm. But if they got someone that they really didn't fit, you know, wasn't a good asset to the organization, they had an out, which right. was the temporary job, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was hired. I was hired with a staff of two. It didn't take long to demonstrate what I brought to the organization. And I understood my self-worth, you know, because I had been in dentistry for 20 years. So even during the interview process, I'm asking them, well, do you guys want me to share with you the anatomy on a radiograph? You know, I knew the lingo for dentistry, right? And I said, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to do that? And, um, and it was all technical stuff, you know, because right. I was a dental hygienist. And the guy, the dean says, oh, no, Ms. Magnell, we, we don't need you to do that. We want to know if you would make a decision. And I just looked at them and I said, you know, that should be the least of your worries. I was a command sergeant major in the Army. That's all <laughs> I did was make decisions, you know, (laughs) you know, and he takes his glasses off, you know, and lays it on the table. And I said, um, well, you know, I don't believe in perpetrating, you know, you get what you get. So I said, um, I'll make it simple for you, doctor. It's like this. If I was your dental hygienist or dental assistant, because as a hygienist, you train to do both and we're on the battlefield and you become capacitated, you better believe that I could give an injection, I could extract a tooth, so I can conserve the fighting strength. He said, really? I said, yeah, that's the Army way. You know, <laughs> nothing stops just because he can't do his job anymore. Right. It's his job to train me to do something so I can send that soldier back to the battlefield. And he, just, he was like, we just didn't expect anyone to apply for this job that had this type of experience, you know, so... Anyway, so I stayed there with them until I retired in 2015. Wow, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So just as much success in your Mm post-military career Mm -hmm. as in your military career. Mm -hmm. So I have so many questions right now. Yeah. Um, Let me see what I want to know. Okay. So (laughs) I guess the first thing I should probably ask you is... um, Let's go back to your military career. Okay. What was the biggest obstacle that you feel that you had to face during your time in? Mm. Probably my attempts to be accepted for special training as an equal opportunity advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the requirements was that you had at least two years of college and served in a leadership position, mm-hmm. right? And I think you had to be a sergeant first class or a new seven. So when I looked at the qualifications, I knew that I met the qualifications. However, when I applied, my application was declined. 
not once, but twice. And I was so disappointed, but I could not understand why, because they never gave me a, a logic answer, a logical mm-hmm. answer. So I called the Department of the Army Training Command, which is TRADOC, and I wanted to talk to the Sergeant Major, which I did. And I explained to him that I wanted to know how come I could not get this course, because equal opportunity was branching material. And I wasn't concerned about what unit I was going to be assigned to. All I knew was I wanted to be an equal opportunity advisor. Uh, three months later, I get a letter or orders or whatever telling me that I had been accepted and approved to go to EO school, which was in Cocoa Beach, Florida. So I go to EO school for four months. And while I'm there, I really get involved in speaking. I won a speech contest when I was there. And as an equal opportunity advisor, I did a lot of platform teaching, which I really, really enjoyed and, and received some favorable feedback for that. And that's what I actually thought was my calling. Would I? Mm-hmm. No one could tell me otherwise. But um, once we were in uh, Fort, when I was in school, everybody started to get assignments. And I felt confident that I was going to get a medical assignment because everybody else was being assigned based on their career field. But no, I get assignment back to Fort Benning and I was assigned to the 5th Regiment. So now everybody's asking, how did a medical person be assigned to Fort Benning as an equal opportunity advisor? Again, someone's looking out for me. But anyway, so I'm assigned to Fort Benning, and I was given the um, 11th Regiment, the Drill Sergeant School, and the 75th Ranger Battalion. Can you imagine as an African-American female as the equal opportunity advisor? Right now, the 11th Regiment included the command group for the installation. So you're talking about the deputy commander, who was my boss, and the um, post commander, you know, all the big wigs on the installation. And then you had the 75th Rangers, a Ranger Battalion. And here I am, an African-American woman, having to go into these type of units and teach sexual harassment and all the isms, you know, is sexism, mm-hmm. racism, you know, bigotry that people don't want to talk about. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, you really had to be creative because you didn't want to offend anybody, but you wanted to ensure that you had effective training as well. And, and that's exactly what I did. I would sit in my office, similar to what I do as a Toastmaster, and I just literally just start thinking, how are you going to present a topic that no one wants to talk about? And you want it to be real. You want it to touch them and understand that it's, it's not right. And so, you know, when I talked about sexual harassment, I would just be very touchy-feely and I would ask the guys, does that make you feel uncomfortable? Can you imagine how these 32 young girls think when you're their leader? All their focus is on you. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, you can't, and you got the power. And they know that, That's you know. Right. So, you know, after doing that for two years, you know, I started receiving requests. You know, we want Miss McNeil, Sergeant McNeil to come teach our class, you know, and um, I, so I really enjoyed it. And I, and I really think that I was there for a reason. You know, I would have, you know, people coming to my office as an equal opportunity advisor. And this was in the 80s. And they were telling me how they were treated unfairly. And I learned that nobody wants to talk about it. So I would always go to commander's offices at the end of the day, you know, where they couldn't just say they were not available or they were too busy. I mean, it would be like at five minutes to five and the secretary will say, 
EO is here, right? <laughs> so they, they had to see it, you know? So you had to be smart about it. Mm-hmm. And I would go into these colonel's offices and they had to respect you by birth of your position, you know, and explain to him that was going on in their unit, you know, oh, well, you know, Tom didn't mean anything by it, so I knew, mm-hmm. you know, and I look at him and I say, sir, no disrespect intended. You don't know what Tom meant by it, mm-hmm. but Tom said it. And we have it in writing. Now, you as the commander have to take action, whether it's a verbal reprimand or something in writing. I really don't care. But I have to report your actions to, the, to my boss, which is a deputy commander, which technically is his boss as well. You know, mm-hmm. so after a while, it's like, well, EO is here, <laughs> you know, because I was all about <laughs> business, you know, it wasn't no game. So I really enjoyed that. So, you know, that was... That probably, if I had to complain about anything or that really stressed me out, that would be it. And, you know, and the other aspect of it is, is that as a senior non-commissioned officer, you go to conferences and you see other non-commissioned officers. And oftentimes you would see your comrades that were either overweight or couldn't pass a PT test. And as far as you were concerned, they were why you couldn't get promoted, especially if the promotions were based on numbers of people in positions. Mm -hmm. So if there was only three vacancies for first sergeant, that means that these four people were getting ready to retire or they weren't going to be selected for promotion. Something was going on with them. But then you sit back and you say, I can't get promoted because he's holding my slot. And he can't Mm. pass his PT test, but I can't. He can't talk in front of a group of people. But I can't. Mm-hmm. But I can't get promoted because he's still on active duty. So, you know, yeah. you had that kind of stuff going on. Or when I was on EO duty, I got selected for E8. And I get a call from my branch congratulating me on my promotion and telling me at that time that I was going to um, Fort Dix, New Jersey. I get a call from another guy who did not get promoted angry with me because I got promoted and I'm taking this assignment. Yeah. So I call branch. I'm like, what's going on? How come they're calling me? Why they're upset? Well, you know, Jennifer upset because you got promoted and they're dead. Well, that's not my fault. (laughs) Why are they calling you? Yeah. (laughs) That seems inappropriate. Yeah. You know, stuff like that. But you know, they just feel like they can do that. Mm -hmm. I bet. Mm -hmm. That sense of entitlement. Yeah. You got Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, they, well, you got promoted because they have to promote so many females. Mm-hmm. But the group, Oh, devalue you then and validate you, your skills. There you go. Typical. You know, when the criteria is the same, mm-hmm. you make the same score on the PT test. You know, you mm-hmm. have to have the same educational level. You have to have tracked in the same type of units, you know. And growing up in the military, you know, the Army provides you with a roadmap if you want to be successful. You know, it tells you if you want to be successful, this is what you need to do, right? And it doesn't say this is what you do as a woman and this is what you do as a man. Right. They say this is what you do if you want to be successful. So, you know, you had to have that intestinal fortitude and that tough skin. And in me, I always tell people, you know, but I don't have a problem smiling. You know, you can break down, you can break a person down, you smile, you know, you just, oh, really? Okay. You know, and just driving in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? It is not this kind of party. It's time to keep on going. <laughs> uh-uh. Oh, nah. Yeah. So 
from your story, mm-hmm. I hear that you faced a lot of like sort of misogyny. It was just ju- just the general environment. Yeah. And um, maybe some sexism. But did mm-hmm. you experience any, because you got, you met your your boyfriend really early in, in your military yes, game, we'll say. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, and you guys got married um, fairly a later. within a year. Mm-hmm. So did you now, because you had a husband on the base, because you guys mm-hmm. were always stationed together, mm-hmm. did you experience any sexual harassment yourself? No, I think because I was married, we involved ourselves in a lot of stuff together. You know, he come pick me up for lunch or I go to his mm-hmm. unit for lunch. So our circle of friends, people who knew us, knew we were married. Now, in the unit, I wouldn't say so much it was sexual harassment. What I would say is that there were some maybe or perhaps leadership issues. Mm. But because I was I was so vocal, maybe that's the best way of putting it, that <laughs> people know who to mess with. You yeah. know, I mean, mm-hmm. they know who they can play with, you know, and, and I was all about getting promoted. And mm-hmm. I was very professional in my job. And because of that, I had a circle of friends of all ranks that liked me as a person. I was fair. And I, you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that I didn't have my issues. I was a NCYC or a clinic manager at Fort Lee and this civilian swore up and down. She filed a complaint against me for age discrimination because none of my previous supervisors actually counseled her. And then here I come straight from Hawaii, (laughs) Mm -hmm. straight as an newly promoted E6, you know, serving as a platoon sergeant for about seven months. My first taste of leadership, if you will, at that time. So now I come to Fort Lee and I'm given a clinic. And it was mixed, civilian and, and military. And Hawaii mm-hmm. was all military. There was no civilians, all military units. So I'm in a different environment now. And she didn't particularly care for it. You know, you know she, didn't, she thought that I was discriminating against her because of her age. And so she filed a complaint. The union rep, I'll never forget, the union rep came in my office. He stood in front of my desk, threw his hands on the desk, and he says, I am Mr. Crevice Shore, and there's an EO complaint against you. This is before wow. I went to yoga school now. This is early in my career, right? And I'm, I'm scared. So I go to my commander, and he says, um, do you have any counseling statement? Well, you know the old stenographer notebooks? Mm-hmm. I used to keep one in my desk, right? So it wasn't a real counseling, but it was a memorandum for records for Jennifer that said the days and times that I sat down and talked to this lady regarding her performance, right? Mm-hmm. So this is what I showed the commander. And he looks at me and he says, I'm new, new E6 now, new supervisor. He looks at me and he says, we're going to support you because you have something in writing. He says, but from this point on, you have formal counseling statements on your employees, both military and civilian. So it was a learning opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. From that point on, I st- mm-hmm. even as, an, as, a, as a sergeant major, I used to tell my first sergeants, Guys, I don't need to get mad because I know how to put pen to paper. <laughs> I, <love that>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to get angry with you. See? <laughs> I know how to put pen to paper. You know, I learned it at a very early time in my career. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's clear all the lessons that you learned and you were taught along the way. Yeah. Really, you took that in and you really just 
created a leadership style that was truly effective Mm -hmm. and actually propelled your your career forward and forward and forward. And so when you transitioned out of the military, Mm -hmm. did you face any difficulties with adjusting back to civilian life? Yes. But the, the transition, from my perspective, was more acceptance, if you catch me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I hope I don't talk too long about this. So when I was hired, <clears throat> probably about three years after I, hi- I was hired, the university conducted a salary equality study among dental schools or medical colleges through the United States. Once they completed their study, they sent these emails out to everybody telling them that your, the base salary for your position today was this amount. So I got the letter. Now, now understand that I know my self-worth to the organization. <laughs> so I took the letter to my boss, the associate dean, and I said, so you're telling me that if I applied for this position today, this would be my starting salary? And he looks, at, he looks up at me and he says, that's my understanding as well, Ms. Magnell. I said, okay, well, I want to raise straight up because I knew what I was bringing to the organization. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I went back to my office and I wrote this long letter that discussed my transferable skills. And, I, and since I was hired there, I got a second master's too in higher education. So I felt like I needed that to solidify my knowledge base for the work that I was doing. <clears throat> so now I have two masters. Okay. And so he says, um, I sent it to him. And he tells me, well, we have to send this to the associate dean of financial affairs. I'm like, okay, now, you know, I'm just telling you what I'm asking for. And every now and then I would go and ask him what was going on. So probably about 90 days, I'm not officially informed, at least not face to face. I get a letter in my inbox telling me that um, they had approved my salary increase to that new base and that all the raises that I had earned over the years would be at, would, I would still get those to include the additional raise that I was going to be getting in about four months. So in a matter of six months, my salary jumped quite a bit. Girl. Okay. <laughs> so I go into a conference room, maybe about six months after that. And this, I'm thinking I'm attending my regular staff meeting. But in this room are all the deans from all the colleges. And um, I said, oh, I'm, I apologize. I'm in the wrong meeting. And they say, oh, no, Ms. Magnolia, you're not in the wrong meeting. Come on in. And at this time, they tell me is that we're getting ready to reorganize the university. And we want to move all of the clinical staff in the student program under you. Ooh, that's what they said. And I said, okay. I sat down. I said, okay, so you guys need to tell me what the problem is. Because you want to move 18 people at one time. Now, remember now, I only had a department of two people. It was only Mm -hmm. me and two ladies that worked for me. Now they want to give me 18 more, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, um, so what's going on? So then one of the doctors said, we know your background. We know what you bring to the organization. And we feel that this is the best place for these employees to be. We've had problems before, and we just really feel that you're the one that can handle it. 
And I said, okay. But you know, you get home and you start thinking, okay, so they've given me all this money. There's no doubt in my mind. Mm -hmm. They already had that plan. Mm -hmm. That was already in the works. You know, and I just so happened to ask for something before it was implemented, you know. So, you know, you, you learn how the powers to be work, you know. So they already had that in the workings, you know. And so I literally built my department, you know. They gave, you know, I, I, I guess you could say that I saw that there was a need for the organization. I would present it and tell them how I could do it. I would always utilize the OMR concept and I would tell the dean, I would say, you look at your outcome, you look at your method, you look at your resources. And if I can make it happen and it not cost the organization any more money, then why not? If after 90 days you do not see anything progressive to my idea or anything that doesn't help the organization, then we can go back and we can relook at it again. But they always say, oh no, no, we, we, you got, you're going to manage it. No problem. You go for it. You know, so, <laughs> awesome. so you know, I, I, I had some issues. All right. So you get these 18 employees <clears throat> and I felt because it was a reorganization, I went to the Dean and I explained to him that I wanted to be a move that would be felt by all employees, not just the leadership. Because if they feel the move, then they know that they are a part of it. And more than likely, they're going to receive it better. So I said, I want to move the dental assistant. Since I was responsible for all of the clinical staff, which included the junior clinic and the senior clinic, I wanted to be able to move the dental assistants in between floors so that they would have a taste of a reorganization. So they agreed. Mm -hmm. But the doctors, the department chairs, didn't. And so they would come to my office and they would say stuff like, you're making a mistake. Um, this dental assistant is trained in this area. We want to keep her. You know, all the, the reasons why not. And I would say, but don't you want all of your dental assistants to be well-trained in all areas of dentistry where they could be flexible enough to work through the floors? Mm-hmm. It'd be better you know, for them too, right? The dental is. assistants, it I is. imagine. It is. I mean, but you know, it's one of those walls you have to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, in the end, it became a win-win across. You know, they agreed with me and it felt wonderful. And I think I wrote it in my book where one of the doctors saw me in the, one of the female dentists, Dean's actually, she saw me in the ladies' room and she said, she actually told me, she says, I actually thought Frank was wrong in moving all of these dental assistants up under you. He said, but you know what, Jennifer? I'm going to be the first one to admit that was the best thing he could have done. And that positive stroke just went so far because she was my biggest at, I mean, we were fighting, we were bumping heads. It got Mm -hmm. to the point that I went into her office and I closed the door and I said, well, you know, she bought me a list of things that she felt like the dental assistant should be doing that she received from another dental assistant. Mm -hmm. So I told her, I says, I don't want that. When she told me that, it just, it just made my day, you know. And then I started getting information. People were being referred to me, and she'd say, oh, Miss McNeil is Dr. Kaufman's right-hand person. If there's any issues or concerns, she's the one that you can talk to, you know. So, you know, that was a plus for me. I really, I, I got a lot of satisfaction out of working there. I'm not going to say I did. I, you, know, you know, every now and then I had to deal with issues with employees that um, racial clear situation occurred that I shared with you earlier. Mm-hmm. The, um, the issue with the doctors, you know, I had employees that, 
didn't particularly care the way the the previous managers were running their departments, you know, because most often it wasn't, people were not placed in leadership positions based on their education. Mm -hmm. They were placed in leadership position based on their tenure. So if they started there as a cashier's clerk, at this point, they could be the supervisor of all the other cashier's clerk with no real leadership or managerial experience or education. So what I found was that my door just became a revolving door. Oh, Miss Bengalini, you talked to you about something, you know, or what do you think about this? I mean, and I would go to people and I'm like, you, do you want to do this all your life? You a clerk. Is this what you want to do all your life? You know, don't you want to go to school? Do you want to get learn a trade? And then they start coming to me like, do you really think I can? Sure you can. Oh, that's beautiful. Sure you can. And to this day, you know, they'll see me and they say, you just don't know. You just changed the trajectory of my life, you know, and it really oh just makes oh, me feel good. Yeah, it really <laughs> does. Beautiful and so beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a powerful impact that you have on the lives of many people. Yes. It's lovely and it must feel amazing. Mm-hmm. So... My next question for you, we have just a couple more before we wrap it up. Okay. Okay. My next question for you is about your book. Okay. So I have, no one can see it but us, but I have holding in my hands right now, Mm -hmm. Stripe, Strength, and Lipstick. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, I can tell everyone that this book is all about being an effective leader and has Mm -hmm. amazing strategies and tips for transitioning back to civilian life. Because as far as, now I know you said you had a difficult time transitioning out, but as far as Mm career-wise, your transition was very smooth. It was. It was. So, um, so I would say these tips would be pretty valuable. If that's a big <laughs> concern, you're about to get out of the military. You need to like read yeah, this book. Yeah. Um, so what, what made you decide to write a book? I felt because I came from an environment, a single mother, five kids. Um, I just felt like I had a story to share. And that when people tell me what they can't do, it's like, yes, you can. If you want to, bad enough. Yes, you can. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and my daughter encouraged me. We were riding in the RV one night and she says, Mama, you really want to write your book? I said, yeah. And she hooked me up with an editor and I just went right into it. That's amazing. And mm-hmm. your daughter actually wrote you such mm-hmm. a lovely like yeah, a, forward, a, yeah, a beautiful forward, and mm-hmm. it was just—it was so like touching to read it. Thank it you. was so nice how she said that she wouldn't have become a lawyer mm-hmm. if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't <laughs> for, for your encouragement and direction, because mm-hmm. she was such a free spirit. She, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think she nicely very nicely said that maybe she was a little all over the place and we <laughs> <her> in <laughs> and got her on the right track. Indeed. We all need sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. We all need that from, from time to time because I know I read in here about your college days, mm-hmm. you know, and you yes. were a little off track. So, yes. I mean, it happens to everyone and it's amazing because talking to you and listening to you, you can hear how polished and professional and well-educated you are. Right. I'm actually, I don't know many people that have two master's degrees, to be honest (laughs) with you. I'm almost finished with my second one, actually, myself. And so when I, I saw that you had two master's degrees, 
you're only one of, I think, three or four people that I have ever met that had two master's degrees. So it's oh, really, okay. really interesting to meet someone that, that has done so much schoolwork because let me tell you, I am so, I have seven classes left and I am so tired of it. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so in your book, what made you decide to, you talk a lot about leadership. So what, what made you decide to make it about being an effective leader? What I did not want to do was talk about the regular, I just wanted to use my experience, my lessons learned as a platform to talk about leadership. You know, we always look to people to mentor us or to guide us. And I felt like what better way than to show how you can develop your leadership by from lessons learned. You know, and I tried to capture what I learned from a different episode in my life, you know, because that's who we are today as a result of our experiences. Mm -hmm. So that was my platform. I wanted to have a little bit of a twist starting from the beginning up until after I retired out of the army and how I really believe when I joined, it said, be all that you can be, you know, join the army. So mm -hmm. I really believe that. Or one of the other ones was um, learn a skill today that you can use tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So that was the mindset at the time, you know, and I wanted to share people that, you know, you can listen, you can internalize things like that and you can push yourself towards success if you want mm -hmm. to. You know, you just got to have the discipline and the determination to do that. Mm, absolutely. I mean, well, when I went into the Navy, mm -hmm. um, the big, everything was about, you know, securing your future by using the Montgomery GI Bill was relatively mm -hmm. new. At yes. The time. Yes. And um, I was into it. And you know what? Um, that GI Bill helped me finance my undergrad. That's right. So, I mean, it took me a long time to, to do it because I was mm -hmm. in and out of school and there's a lot of things happening in my personal life that, and all, but all I wanted to do was go to school. That is why I joined the military mm -hmm. so that I could have a college education and still so many years later, yes. <laughs> completing it. Um, there you go. You know, um, so I love that. It's amazing mm -hmm. that you, you chose to write a book about effective <laughs> leadership skills. <laughs> so so um, we had a special guest just now. Uh -huh. You couldn't see him, yeah. but the darling husband, yeah. <laughs> um, Mr. McNeil, yeah. <laughs> we'll call him, give him his proper respect, um, mm -hmm. just popped into the room really quickly and I waved hi to him and he waved yeah. back. It was really nice. Um, so. Okay. I've taken up so much of your time oh, and cool. um, I have one more question for mm -hmm. you. Well, actually two, but the last one is just more about where we can find your book and all of that. Okay. So my last big question for you is what advice would you give to all the female veterans who are listening or who are active duty members who might be listening, who's, um, who your story might become their survival guide? I would tell them, if, if you're asking me what advice would I give them today, mm -hmm. determine where you want to go in the Army or military, and I'm sure in all the branches it's the same, that you can take one path, which is hands-on, clinical, or technician type, or one path that's going to be leadership or managerial. And once you decide which way you want to go, just keep on going. Just push yourself 
until you figure, okay, this is it. I, you know, I never aspired to be a sergeant major. I always wanted to be a first sergeant. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was a fun job for me. I never looked past that. But working towards first sergeant earned me my sergeant major. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so, you know, you know, the three D's, you got to be determined, you got to be decisive, and you got to be dependable. You do that, you can go a long way. I think that applies to anyone who's not in the military too, right? There you go. Decide which field you want to go in and go hard. (laughs) Be determined. There you go. I love that. It's beautiful advice. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for it. You're welcome. And so now tell us where we can find your book. And I know you're on social media. So if anyone wants to follow you and keep up with what you're doing, how can we all follow along? Okay. So I'm on Facebook. It's Jennifer McNeil. Mm-hmm. Augusta, Georgia, military. So if you open up my site, you'll know immediately who I am. I am also a Toastmaster. I'm, I'm an avid Toastmaster, currently president of my group. I'm also on Instagram at Stripe Strength and Lipstick. And as far as purchasing my book, currently it is on Amazon. If you just type in Stripe Strength and Lipstick or Jennifer McNeil, Stripe Strength and Lipstick, you're able to purchase it. And you can direct message me as well if you have any issues or concerns. Awesome. Well, I got to say, this has been such a great interview. I was really excited to do it. Um, Thank you. And it's been such a pleasure to spend this time with you and connect with you. And I appreciate you having me. You just don't know. Made my day. Oh, mine too. Thank you so much. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. And with that, we're going to wrap it up. Again, I just have to take a moment to say thank you so much to everyone who has been supporting this journey and who has come on this journey with me, to all of my guests and to all of my upcoming guests, everyone who is asking for um, Venmo information and ways to support the podcast. Definitely check in the description notes and you can find ways to support the show. Uh, and definitely reach out to me via Instagram if you are interested in being a guest. And um, I just got to say thank you so much. I appreciate you. I love you guys, and I'll talk to you next time. 